0: if you're ready to take your destiny into your own hands you've come to the right place this is the bulletproof entrepreneur featuring interviews with the most exciting and amazing entrepreneur here's your host chi odogu
1: This episode is brought to you by Odogo.com. where you need to find high-quality leads from Facebook and Instagram, there's only one name to call and one man to trust. That's odogwu.com the growth marketing guy. If you love today's episode, please feel free to go on iTunes and like the show and leave a review and a comment in iTunes. Hey guys, welcome to the show. I'm talking to Rex Connor. Rex is the author of the book, What If Common Sense Was Common Practice in Business?, now that sounds a little strange because you'd expect business people to have common sense but as Rex and I were just discussing on the pre-chat that's not usually the case. So he's here to tell us a little bit about that he's the lead partner of Mega Consortium where he helps businesses become high performance companies so that they can, you know, improve their processes and systems as well as be able to keep and retain high-performing staff. He's a retired Air Force captain who traded in his wings in order to help companies take off and succeed. So I'm pleased to have Rex on the show today.
0: Thank you, and I'm very pleased to be here.
1: Yeah. So Rex, before we get into the nitty-gritty of the discussion, tell us a little bit about yourself and your background.
0: Well, I'm an entrepreneur also, and I didn't, uh, I didn't start out that way. And after time in the Air Force, I Went to work in a corporate position uh, with a financial services company as an advisor. But I had a background in training, so they asked me to come and um, work in and run the training department for the company, which I did for about eight years. And then when it came time to to leave that job is when I decided, okay, I'm going to be an entrepreneur, Um, but I found a company that I could become a with. And so I worked for that company for a few years. They started going south uh, before I um, got with a partner and started Mager Consortium. And so my, my passion has been in my experience both in my own corporate position and then as a consultant going into various companies, I could see that we all see violations of common sense all the time and we talk about it we say why on earth are they doing this and it's just too common and i think it happens because people don't know they can fix it and we can so i became mm-hmm. passionate about
1: that. you spent roughly about a decade in the air force before you left is that correct that's correct yeah so um usually i a lot of people stay in the service um Longer than that, maybe all through their life. But um, what was your experience like in the service, and then why did you decide it was time to, you know, leave the service and come into um, civilian life?
0: Well, I loved serving. I was in the Air Force as an instructor pilot. I I loved doing that, and um, thought I had a good career as a a pretty good performer. I was the youngest in my position to have that position, and things were going very well for me. Something you find out in the military, and it's there's nothing wrong with this. It's just the way it is. Is the better you do, the less control you have on your career <laughs> because you start getting wow. notoriety, and people, you know, colonels and generals say, "Hey, I want him to come work here, and I want him to work there." And um, I faced a situation where a couple generals fought over me. That's very complimentary, but I didn't go the way I wanted. And I said, you know what? The, the harder I work, the less control I'm going to have. And while I love serving, I love flying, I said, that's not the life I want for my family and I at this point. And I was at a point where I could opt to get out of the service and and chose to do that and go to work for a living, mm. <laughs> which was a tough transition after doing a job I love, flying, um, serving the country. I love that. so. That was a tough decision, as it is for all the entrepreneurs. And they're going to leave, you know, make a big change, and like I said, there's a transition. I had another job before becoming an entrepreneur. But mm-hmm. That's a decision for everyone.
1: And then you mentioned um, you had like two jobs before you started your own company, and you said the second one you worked, you liked the consulting role, but um, the company started to go south before you now decided to exit. So, w- what were some of the problems that were going on in there? And what did you see, and how did that catalyze you to um, take a leap of faith and bet on yourself?
0: Well, thanks for asking about that background, and it ties into what we're going to be talking about. Um, Because the name of my company is Mager Consortium, named after Dr. Robert Mager, who was a big fish in the little pond of um, human performance in the workplace. He came in, and he brought science to training into processes in the workplace. And I didn't know it when I was in the Air Force as an instructor pilot. The Air Force used his methodology of developing training hmm. in graduate pilot training. They called it something else. They called it IST. Um, I forget what that stands for, but I didn't realize till later when I was in a corporate training position, I went to the workshops and realized, great, this is what this is how they ran pilot hmm. training. And that I became passionate about that, and the company I was working for had the rights to his uh, proprietary methodology and teaching his workshops. And when it started going south, um, I got to know him a little bit, told him what was going on, and, and uh, he was good enough to um, get his copyrights back from them and allow me to do the work. So that's why he's not involved. He's going to be 94 next week. Wow. He's on to, he's on to other passions. He writes murder mysteries. that am still very active, but um, but he's good enough to let us carry the banner, so to speak, use his name, teach his workshops.
1: When it comes to performance in companies, when you start a job, you get trained, you come into the workplace, you do the work. Nobody really talks about uh, annual performance until maybe a month or two months towards when you're supposed to get your first review. And then you realize, oh, my goodness, um, what these guys are going to grade me on is not necessarily what I have been doing or I have been working on. So could we talk a little bit about that?
0: Yes, I I love that subject. And the first story in the book, um, all the stories in the book are actual stories. But the first one is about uh, a young lady who um, had had experience and a degree and was hired as a counselor, college uh, career counselor, but found out really she was just um, telemarketing. So the school, Uh this uh, online university, if they could get someone to attend one class, the people would get a grant, and they would get paid because they got uh, the person to to get the grant. And that wasn't anywhere in the recruiting process. She found that out when she was being trained. So she was recruited as a career counselor, trained as a telemarketer, and found out, she was going to be evaluated on how much of a team player she was. In other words, how well she could suck up to her boss. Oh. You know that, that sounds like an extreme story, but doesn't it happen quite often where the recruiting picture and the processes paint one picture and then the training paints another one, and then your actual evaluation comes as a surprise? Yeah. None of it could happen. The, and that One of the problems is when companies stovepipe, the, in other words, they have re, the recruiting people at HR own the recruiting process, and they may do things differently than the training people that own the training process, and they do things differently than the people on the job who do the evaluation and have to develop people. If those three are speaking different languages, it's just very inefficient. Uh, not to mention, very frustrating for the workers.
1: Totally agree with you there. Well, what are some of the ways to start um, tackling that um, dissonance between what you heard coming in versus what actually happens while you're in the in the uh, organization?
0: Dissonance is a good description. And since um, a lot of people listening are entrepreneurs, let me tell you a quick story about. Um, A lady who started her own hospice company had years of experience, had a partner, and she asked me to come in and help build their business systems from day one, which was a wonderful, wonderful opportunity. And I I applaud her for having the insight to realize that even though she was tremendous at hospice work, um, she needed business systems around her. And the very first thing, very first thing we did, the first, very first meeting. Well, the first thing was we had a prayer as a hospice company. But the next thing we did is we learned a simple process to clarify subjective communication, or what I call fuzzy communication,
1: mm-hmm.
0: when you talk about performance. So when when you say, "Hey, you need to be a team player. You need strong communication skills. You need to have business acumen." Those are fuzzies. They're open to interpretation. Mm-hmm. It needs to be part of the culture in your in your company to make it okay to clarify fuzzy communication, and I'll talk about the process in just a second. But they adapted that so well that when people need to work with their new company, the first thing they did they said the first orientation they said, welcome to the company, welcome to your new employee orientation, the first thing we're going to teach you is how to clarify fuzzy communication. Just like we started our meeting that way, they taught all their employees this. And here's how it goes, Chi. If, if you say to me, hey, Rex, you need to be more of a team player. And I feel that's fuzzy. It needs to be okay for us to have the conversation of me saying, fair enough, G, When you observe me being a good team player, what are you observing me do. Mm. And then you're going to give me some answers and some of your answers may be fuzzy and I just keep on trying to get clear answers. So for example, once we get down to it, now this could take a long time. It's not an easy conversation a lot of the time. Um, So we're going to simplify it here. But when we get done, you may have told me, okay, Rex, when you're a team player, it means you're showing up to team meetings on time. You're volunteering for assignments. You're uh, helping team members complete their assignments. You aren't rolling your eyes when uh, team members are talking. <laughs> so the point is, you have a list of observable performances. Uh-huh. So you translated this fuzzy of what does it mean to be a team player, which, as you know, you would have a definition, different definition than I would. You've translated into a list of observable performances. So it's not nearly as subjective. It's not open to interpretation you can observe me doing each one of those performances. That's right. So that's really the first step or an early step in establishing a common performance language. Um, and then, but let me get to the bottom line here. Really, the the whole performance in the workplace, and if your people are just starting their own company or they have a small company because they're entrepreneurs, this... Um, I'm not saying it's easy, but it's less involved than if you have a large company already going. Yeah. But all of your processes, everything you do as far as producing, whatever um, goods or service you produce, it's done by process. Those need to be governed by clear performance objective. A clear performance objective, Dr. Mager, the mentor I I mentioned before, he did this in, in the context of instructional design, but it works here. It's a human performance tool. A clear performance objective tells you what task you need to accomplish, what the standards are, in other words, or what conditions are under which you perform the task, and what the standards are. Now, if any of your listeners have served in the United States Army, they're familiar with that terminology I just used of task condition standards which, by the way, they got from Dr. Mager back in the 70s. <laughs> that's that's how they govern everything in the Army, and that's how you need to govern everything in your business. Everyone should be clear on what the outcome should be or what the task is, the conditions under which you perform it, and so, so importantly, the criteria that's going to be used to judge your performance. Mm-hmm. An objective criteria needs to have a objective um, standards objective meaning not open to interpretation not subjective so if my task is to complete a report I need to know all the time what the standards are for that report I can't turn it in and have something different be given different feedback every time I need to know objectively what the standards and it's not just writing a report anything I do if I produce a widget I need to know the time, the quality. If I'm on on the phone as a customer service person, I need to know if I need to be following a script or hitting main points, or I need to have the the fuzzy clarified of what it means to provide good service. That needs to be translated to observable performances. So a performance objective needs to govern my entire job. And so a job description should be all the tasks I need to perform under what conditions I perform and to what standard they have to be performed. So when it comes time to evaluate me, we're all speaking the same language, a common performance language. Hmm. No one should be surprised in an annual or semi-annual performance evaluation. No one should be surprised. Hmm. Everyone should know eight because their job description is so clear and every task they have has a standard, they should know all the time what their performance is.
1: Oh. When you mentioned the task conditions and standards, I, it quickly flashed through my mind that this might account for why many ex service people seem to thrive in entrepreneurship. Because while a lot of people come out from corporate or they start on their own, they don't have these. Um, this system and this process drilled into them naturally like an ex-service person does. So in as much as they come out of the structure of the service, they're able to thrive in an unstructured environment because they're naturally able to adapt and create situations where they know how to list out the tasks they need to, to get to the conditions and the standards they, which they'll measure themselves if they're succeeding or if they're failing and how to rapidly adapt and change tactic if it's not working.
0: That is great insight, and that's why so many people are so um, positive about hiring veterans. Yeah. If this is drilled into them, they automatically, from their muscle memory, focus in on just like you said, okay, what's my task? What standard am I going to be graded against? What do you want me to, What's the outcome look like? Now get out of my way. Let me do it.
1: This is a perfect segue to talk about... Um, One of the other aspects, which is in terms of knowledge management, because um, reading the book, I noticed that a lot of um, performance is also based on the knowledge which is locked up in the minds of the employees. And when some people leave, you find that there are holes in the business. You can't actually perform the business as you would because there's a key man that has gone, that has taken all the knowledge with him. And there's now a rise in, you know, trying to get knowledge management procedures up and running in every organization so that they are not hampered or hindered when key employees leave. Could you talk a little bit about this and how the CRI framework can help alleviate some of these problems that this uh, issue brings up?
0: Yes, I I love that topic because... That's a violation of common sense. If if we're afraid of people leaving because they have so much knowledge, why not capture the knowledge before they leave? (laughs) Isn't that common sense? That sounds like it. Right now, for example, one of my good clients, Southern California Gas, the oil and petroleum industry right now is just scared to death. They know this is coming. They have known it's coming for quite some time, but r- this time period right now and for the next five to eight years, they're losing 55% of their experience to retirement, people retiring. And so they say there's this big knowledge gap. Well, you know, you could you could capture that and here's how you do it. Let me go back to my hospice company. I said the first thing they taught people was how to clarify fuzzy communication. The second skill that they taught people in new in the new higher orientation was how to map out a process oh. and they taught everyone certified nurse assistants chaplains everyone learned how to build a flowchart of what their what a job process is in other words every task we perform in the workplace we do steps to get a certain outcome yeah. well you can chart steps out sometimes the steps say well if this then that and so you branch out you build a map around it and so in the new person and this was the strangest orientation anyone ever experienced (laughs) in the new person orientation they say first we're going to teach you how to clarify fuzzy language second we're going to teach you how to map out the processes because we know you are going to find a better way and every six months to a year depending on the task here, we're going to have you update the flowchart that happens. so we can recognize your creativity and also so we can keep it as a record. So, you know, if you don't show up to work one day because you get hit by the proverbial beer truck and drown in the foam like we'd all like to go, oh. if that happens to you, we have, we know what someone can step in and have some job aids on how to do your job and get your best. Your most creative thinking because it's documented and captured. So, for whatever purpose that person leaves the job, you want to have captured the better way they found to do their job. You can do that. It's not, I'm not saying it's easy, but the process is simple. That I like mixed metaphors, Chi, and my favorite one is this is not rocket surgery. The, <laughs> process, the process is simple if you'll build a process around doing it, so they have to do it periodically. There's a way to catalog these. They're required to update as you go. There's a way to access them. And the hospice company did this for that reason, because they knew people come and go in that industry. They want to capture the best best thinking of the people, so it's not a crisis when someone walks out the door.
1: And I read somewhere in the book that you said that it's possible – to eliminate the learning curve and have an employee come in and be skilled up and ready to go to work right away. What did you mean when you were saying that?
0: Most of the work I've done in the last 20-plus years, man, I'm getting old, um, <laughs> has been in the, in the realm of training. And that's where Dr. Mager that I mentioned, that's where he he focused his expertise. Mm-hmm. So he came into the corporate world, not as an academic person, although he had a PhD, but he was a scientist. And he looked around at how we did training in the corporate world. And he said, you people are messed up. You're trying to do training like they do public education, where you dump a whole lot of information on someone, you test their retention, and then hope that somewhere, somehow they'll apply that. He said, Let education do what they do, but that's not not an effective way to do it when someone needs to go on the job the day after training Uh and actually perform. What you need to do is find out what a competent person does on the job in real life, build a performance objective around that, and then you reverse engineer the training around that performance objective. And so... Think about this. You you already know that the objective tells you here's my task, here are the conditions under which I perform, and the standard to which I perform. When you are trained in every performance objective that you use on the job, when you get on the job, there's nothing new. Hmm. You can perform because you did it in training and you demonstrated it in training, and you're confident in that hmm. skill because you showed it. You demonstrated it for an expert. And there are no, by the way, there's no group uh, demonstration or skill check, we call them. There's no group skill check. Each individual has to demonstrate confidence in each task. Okay. So when each individual demonstrates confidence in each task under the same conditions that, or as close to as they can in training that they're getting on the job, when they get on the job, they can perform. And it sounds, I hope, that sounds like common sense, even though it's not common practice. Yeah, I've seen that for the last, oh, 25 years. Well, starting with my time in the Air Force, when you use that process, people have the skill and can perform on day one of the job. And I love when I go into a new company and I tell them, there are a few things I tell them, that's one of them. I said, when, when they're finished with the training program that we'll build for you, they will perform up to the standard to which we build the training program, hopefully the same standard that they use on the job. Uh-huh. They'll perform up to the standard on day one. And peop- no one believes that. They always laugh at me, and laughing like scorning me, <laughs> not <laughs> laughing like funny, laughing like, yeah, right. And so they are so amazed when it works, but it works because you are bringing science, human performance science, to training, you aren't bringing academia to training, hmm. and so it's a whole different result that you get. But
1: hmm. well, what are some factors that need to be in place before you, uh, a company can start seeing these type of um, high level of performance in their employees after they've called you?
0: We need to we need to start, like I said, with with an analysis of what a competent performer does on the job. Mm-hmm. We need verify all the fuzzies, build the performance objective, and then you decide this this method of designing the instruction is a little bit different um, when you use Dr. Mager's method than anyone else because you don't decide what the content is. You decide, you know, what the objective is. You decide what the skill check is going to be. Well, it's going to look just like the objective, just like what they're going to have to do on the job. The next thing you decide is, how are they going to practice this in training? And you structure the practice. Now that the practice is in place, you say, can they start practicing right now without, without any content in the training? And if the answer is no, as it usually is, you say, well, it's because they don't know something, they don't know how to do something, or there are some common mistakes they might make. But if you just clarify those three factors, mm-hmm. so you're... You have very lean instruction, and you are only accomplishing what they need. You're only giving them content for what they need to start practicing so they can perform the skill check. Hmm. And so it saves a tremendous amount of money, an obscene amount of money in training someone if the training is that focused so they can go in, get the minimum information they need to start so they can perform the
1: skill check. I've noticed that people don't usually quit a job. They quit their their bosses. And you made a statement in the book saying that um, it's almost possible to have an organization in which there are no bosses. How does something like that happen?
0: Dang, you picked up on some of the subtleties in the book too. You're good at this. Let me say that a little bit a little bit differently even though I probably said it just like that in the book. Um, you can have an organization where the bosses don't have power over your personal life. Oh, oh. You still, every human, including me, I run my company. I have regular sessions to be accountable for certain things with different people in my company. Okay. Everybody needs to be accountable. So if you want to call the person to whom you're accountable, the boss, that's fine. So I'm there. In that case, I have about eight bosses. No, that's overstating. I have three bosses, and they're all millennials, and I'm not. I'm an old guy, okay. and I'm accountable to them for different things, but accountability is such an important factor. So when I'm saying you know, this about bosses, I'm not saying you don't need to be accountable. We all need to be. Okay. But if you have clear processes, you don't need to give a boss – A subjective power over how I get paid, how I get pay raises, Uh how I get fired, how I get my work scheduled. See, all of those factors which become um, breeding grounds for conflict, Uh if they are just regularly established objective processes, now you don't have a boss coming in. Well, I've had this experience and I think most of us have. um, And I used the example earlier of being a team player because that's what happened. I went into a boss thinking I was going to get high praises, get a huge pay raise because the work I'd been doing made the company literally millions of dollars using that training system I was talking about. And I get in there and the boss says, well, Rex, I'm giving you the minimum pay raise I can because of the problem we're having. And I said, Problem are we having? And that said, ain't well, right. <laughs> he said, "You aren't a team player." And I said, "I was just—I I mean, as I was astounded. and the the conversation didn't get any better from here." Yeah. And it ended. I actually left that position that I thought I was ideally suited for. I was doing well. Everyone liked me except my boss and my boss's boss. Um, you know, I was making the company literally millions of dollars. But you know, that's not—that's not an uncommon. Uncommon occurrence when you have a subjective way to evaluate someone. You know, it's great when the boss loves you, as my previous boss has, mm-hmm. or has. but when the new one doesn't and it's subjective, you're just you're just out. The boss wins those situations. Yes. And so if you can establish objective work processes, you take away the potential for conflict. So you can be evaluated, you can be paid, you can be promoted, objectively, without someone having power over you. Um, you know, or giving you the bad work schedules all the time, or you know, creating a hostile environment. So you will leave.
1: How do you get people, managers, directors, partners, uh, MDs to buy into this philosophy? It will probably take a lot to change. Um, what they're already used to or what they're already comfortable with. So how do you get them to start buying into this philosophy and taking this approach as the right approach?
0: I appreciate that, and you are so correct with the, with that and with what you said earlier about it needs to come from the top, and, and it's tough. Um, doing something that you think is so good shouldn't be so difficult, but it really is. I think that the most success I've found in it, and I'm not saying I'm successful immediately all the time, this is a long term battle if you're indicating. Mm-hmm. Um, but the reason it gets accepted is because one, it is common sense, people recognize it, and two, it is the most efficient and effective way to operate. So, to the degree that bosses are tuned into efficiency, to profit, to um, making people more productive. This makes sense, and it works. So that's that's the key. When when you can appeal to first pointing, just laying it out and saying, "Look, can we try this? This is common sense. I think it's going to increase our productivity." And you do it, and increases productivity. It just the momentum grows. Mm-hmm. So if I can give you a couple of examples. Yes, um, please. One of my favorite Um, started in the training realm. And and like I said, that's where Dr. Mager's focus was the technical training, the way they uh, trained technicians in the Honda Motor Company in the late 70s um, converted or to this way of training. And the result was just spectacular how well their technicians were trained, um, their experience on the job parts and service, especially service part of businesses, just went up right away. And Honda of Japan, they would often come over, the way they told me the story at Honda, uh, American Honda, that often come over and say, okay, what are you Americans doing? Okay, well, that's good for you. You know, you keep doing it that way. We'll do it our way in Japan. This process was the first time an American process was Adopted by Honda of Japan and became the Honda way mm. because because it was the change was so dramatic and so that's the way to do it it's to it's to make changes that's going on right now I was just on a call before uh, you and I started talking with Intuit the software company they're a good client they're converting over to this way of training but training's just the first uh, it's the entry point for a lot of companies from yeah. there. When the training's this effective, well, you need to hire the right people. And so you use the same, the same tools, the same processes to build clear job descriptions that focus on the skills that someone has to have to learn what they're going to learn in training. And then you focus on the other end of, okay, let's evaluate them the same way they were trained to do. Let's make this whole job description the same job description with which they are recruited, trained, and evaluated. Huh. So
1: for me, what I'm getting uh, – could you go on? No, that's fine.
0: It's not an overnight process like you're saying. There's an entry point. It's often the training system, although it can be the recruiting system or the evaluation
1: system. Okay.
0: But it's often training. Then you see some efficiencies. You get the attention of higher and higher management. Um, Fortunately, uh, you're working with a lot of entrepreneurs that – no, the, they're either the management or they're working directly with the manager yeah. So it's a a little, a little more simple process.
1: Yeah so and what you're telling me is that there's always a gateway that you need to at least bring this through and then um, once it comes through into the company through that gateway then you can allow go in from the side and then approach all the other areas where this framework can work and help them. And I think I, I summarized that to basically say it, it wouldn't make sense until it makes dollars and cents. Is that correct?
0: Oh, I, I, I'm going to use that saying, Jim. It doesn't make sense until <laughs> it makes dollars and cents.
1: Love it. I'm going
0: to use the heck out of that.
1: That's great. So let's start transitioning. We've really spoken a lot about what you do with your company and your practice, but let's 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 transition towards... um you being kind of like an elder statement in this entrepreneurship and consulting game and start dispensing some words of wisdom to people that are thinking of starting their own ventures or even branching out as independent consultants themselves. What keeps you um, jumping out of bed every day, day after day, doing this work?
0: Let me give you two answers to that excellent question. Um, when I first met with Dr. Meger, Personally, I'd met him at a couple of dinners before, but when I sat down and had a business meeting with him, it was because I had seen what this had done in the Air Force and pilot training. I'd seen what it had done in the business world, and I had heard that it had spectacular results in education. And I have it's kind of a life mission um, pursuit for me to help people, especially youth at risk, um, to really get the positive experience of learning life skills. Oh. And so, and I had an opportunity at a local university with a professor, friends of mine we were collaborating, and I said, hey, let's use, let's use this methodology from Dr. Mager. It's called Criterion Reference Instruction, or CRI. And he's had some experience with it in public schools. Let me, let me talk with him. So I met with him about it told him what I wanted to do and asked him if he had any advice. And his advice was run and hide. (laughs) Do not (laughs) try to use this in schools. I said, well, why not? You've tried it. Didn't it work? He said, it worked too well. He said, it's such a different, as you pointed out earlier, Chi, it's such a different approach to developing skills that people will not understand it, it's going to work extremely well, someone won't understand it, and they will shut it down because you are encroaching on their empire, their mm-hmm. way of doing things. They said it's too frustrating. And I found out um, he's right. <laughs> we tried it anyway and had exactly the results he said. It works incredibly well because it's, si- it's built on science. It's built on human performance. But public education isn't ready for that. So yeah. I want to develop a supplement to the public education system. So that keeps me going. That's what I jump out of bed for. Now, the the second answer um, that I wanted to give you is this works, this improves the human experience for anyone it touches. And it's touching very few people. And Dr. Mager never said it in this this context, Um, but... The, the secret here that shouldn't be a secret is subjective work processes are the greatest barrier to, to productivity in the workplace. Hmm. And I gathered that because that's what he did with training. That's what makes training using his CRI methodology so dr- dramatically better. It's because he takes subjectivity out of the whole training process. Well, if you take subjectivity out of the recruiting process and out of all the work processes where people are performing, if you introduce science, if you introduce a methodology that's built on scientific principle, not educational philosophy or educational theory, people perform better. And the results are so dramatic every single time. I love being involved with that.
1: Who's your favorite entrepreneur and why do you admire that person so much?
0: Um, I'll, I'll name three quickly. One, Dr. Robert Mager that I mentioned. Yeah. Uh, his first book he wrote just went viral before viral was a thing back in the uh, late 70s, early 80s, called um, "Preparing Instructional Objectives." And um, you know, so from then on, it was his business, him doing it. And you know, he just found a niche, a niche service that real well, bringing um, something to the world. But his gift wasn't this. St- it was this technical um, expertise, but he has a knack, and that's why he's writing fictional novels now. He makes things an easy rate read, very oh. simple to understand. I've taught his workshops I don't know how many dozens of times, which means hundreds of people, maybe thousands. Everyone gets it. No one, no one drops out of the workshop because they aren't getting it because he could make this so simple. You imagine this whole complex world about instructional design, human motivation, human performance, and he put it in a methodology. He d- there are no fancy words in it. Uh-huh. He just makes it clear and simple. So um, that's an that's an inspiration to me. And the fact that he's ninety, turned ninety four and going strong is is uh, an inspiration also. Uh, Doctor Stephen Covey, who I never met, um, who um, I had some similar, interactions. Seven habits, correct? You know it. Yeah, seven habits highly effective people. Um, You know, for him to build a whole career and 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 do the good that he did just by teaching principles, natural laws. I heard someone ask him one time um, some question about does it get a lot of position? He said, you know, I'm on pretty safe ground. I'm teaching natural law. Who's going to argue against gravity? (laughs) Um, I, I think I'm doing the same thing. So that's an inspiration to me. And then uh, one more man who um, I got to tell you this story real, real quickly. He was in war in Vietnam, and you know it was one of those units where very few people came back and saw all the horrible things that you would see in that, um, in that situation. And it motivated him to, you know, when you talk about someone seeing something and doing something about it, he has conceptualized a whole society in which people. In which you could do something about it. In other words, a whole society can work without power over other people. The unfortunate acronym, as you know, is poop. Mm-hmm. But uh, he conceptualized that. And so I, I incorporate that in the business model that I use, the, the one I explained where bosses don't have to have power over you, even though you need to be accountable to them. Um, he conceptualized all that and how an education system could run. So uh, those three men are, are uh, all three are big inspirations to me.
1: Great. And finally, if you could go back, um, no, no, okay, no, leave that. So for new grads, so people that just graduated from college, uh, let's say last month. Now, what's your advice to people, either new grads or people still working in a corporate job, thinking of stepping out to launch their own business. Um, what would you advise those guys, um, to do or to watch out for, and what are some of the books or tapes or audio programs that have helped you achieve the level of success you've achieved?
0: Very good. I, I, this answer may not be um, what you're expecting, but for new grads, for people considering career change, definitely, definitely this one. I just wrote an article about this for, a, um, for an, another person's book. You have an internal guidance system that's continually paying attention to all of the natural results of what you do, the decisions you make, what the results of that is. Um, it pays attention to other people. Sometimes it can tell their motive when you can't tell them consciously. Whatever you call your internal guidance system, and I'm not talking about ego. Mm. I'm not talking about you know the first thing that comes to your mind is, you know, ego or your survival instinct of, hey, what are we having for lunch here? You know, we need to make money. We need to, to get things. I'm not talking about that, but the, the uh, voice inside of you beneath that, would you call it? I call it common sense. You can call it conscience. You can call it um, in the energy world. We call it, um, well, just that. We call it um, energy. Um, in, our, a lot of names in a
1: voice, spirit.
0: Yes. Yes. spirit, Whatever you want to call it, Mm. pay attention to that. Take those quiet moments to pay attention because it has wisdom that you don't consciously have yet because it's been paying attention while you've been busy living life and it's been taking notes. And so when you're, you know, facing, man, I want to jump, I want to, I want to run my own business. And let's say you, you bake pies and you love baking pies and you want to do that as a business, when you listen to your common sense or your inner voice, your conscience, whatever it is, it may say, you know, you love baking pies, but you don't know much about business. I I think you get distracted from your love of baking pies when you had to hire people, fire people, run a business, do taxes. You wouldn't get to bake pies as much. Are you sure you want to do that? And that's just an example. It may tell you to jump. It may tell you not to. But the point is, it will guide you, and it's the best guidance system you have. Listen to everyone, but follow your common sense. Follow your conscience.
1: Thank you for that. And so where can people get more information about you and about the book and what you're doing?
0: I appreciate that. We're on LinkedIn at the magerconsortium.com. I'll spell it out because it's a mouth Mager is M-A-G-E-R, so Mager Consortium, M-A-G-E-R, C-O-N-S-O-R-T-I-U-M. That's our website also. It's magerconsortium.com. Mm-hmm. Uh, the book, What if Common Sense Common is Common, Common Practice. Right. That's available on Amazon, and it's available on our website. Um, and, and uh, of course, I have a profile on LinkedIn, but the company, Mager Consortium, has a has a Profile on LinkedIn. Great.
1: And uh, with that said, I'd like to thank you for coming to spend the hour with us, telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, your wisdom, and um, this uh, revolutionary framework when it comes to being optimum and high performers at the workplace or in our businesses. And we um, wish you continued success. I look forward to hearing more from you, as you know, your career and the trajectory of your business and your practice grows from strength to strength.
0: Well, thank you, and same to you. Especially uh, servicing people, I know I appreciate it. uh, Entrepreneurs that, you know, we'll take all the help we can get, all the sources of wisdom, advice. What you're doing is a tremendous service. Thank you for that.
1: Thank you. If you like the episode, please leave a review and a rating on itunes it helps more wonderful listeners like you find the show and as always this episode was brought to you by odogo.com that's o-d-o-g-w-u.com if you need someone to help you out with your facebook and instagram marketing and you want to turn advertising into profit for your company look no further than odogo.com signing out
0: Don't let another minute go by without taking action to change your life. Visit Ordashi.com right now for more incredible resources. And we'll see you next time on Ordashi, the Bulletproof Entrepreneur.